want, please open your Bibles with me to Luke, and we're at chapter 4. Again, if, if you do not have a copy of the Bible, we do. There's a Bible in the chair in front of you, a blue Bible. And if you're unfamiliar with finding the Gospel of Luke, the Bible has two major divisions, Old Testament, New Testament. The New Testament is about the back third of the Bible. It begins with the book of Matthew, moves to Mark, and then you will find your way to Luke. And we're beginning at Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Luke three twenty-three. So while you're turning there, I was looking up online uh, just some family background stories, and I found this remarkable story of a guy named David Howe who was exploring his family tree And he discovered that he was the long-lost heir to the throne of the Isle, the British Isle of Man. I mean, what do you do when you discover something like that? Well, if you're an American, you contact TLC and you create a reality TV show. And that's just what he did in 2015. TLC ran a series called Suddenly Royal, chronicling David with his wife Pam and 12-year-old daughter Grace, uh, trying to claim the throne of the British Isle of Man. They traveled some 3,000 miles, and they determined what it would mean to look and act like royalty. And as you can imagine, that went really well. (laughs) So moving from the blue-collar world to the high society of nobility was a big transition. He experienced several problems. Uh, You can imagine, number one, he has no understanding of basic royal etiquette. So he hires for himself a royal advisor and an etiquette coach. Now, the first time he meets the royal uh, advisor, he scandalizes this guy by approaching him with a fist bump instead of, of course, a handshake. And uh, things could have been worse for Lady Colin Campbell when he took his napkin and he tucked it in his shirt and in the middle of dinner blew his nose. Etiquette aside, David also quickly realized that the people of the British Isle of Man just wouldn't accept him because he had some family background. In one of the local pubs, he was having a conversation with a guy and he said, you're the king, the king of what? Well, he explained to him that he was a descent of Sir John Stanley, the first Tyler King of the Isle of Man. And the man let out a hearty laugh and said, that's a good joke. What went wrong? Let's think about this for a minute. I would suggest to you this morning that pedigree and acceptance were two factors that were at play here in David Howe's attempt to be king. Now, clearly, he has the genetics. He was actually invited to the royal wedding. Uh, He had the family background for that. But acceptability was another matter altogether. The people struggled with the idea of the redneck who wants to become royalty. He didn't talk the talk. He didn't understand the role. He didn't even want to live on the British Isle of Man. So... These many factors made it impossible for them to accept him as king. Now, in our next section of Luke, pedigree and acceptance will also be important. 
Uh, Luke concludes chapter 3 by giving us this detailed genealogy, which if you don't know what a genealogy is, it's a family tree. And by giving us this description of Jesus' ancestors, Luke is asking the question to us, does Jesus have the light, or does he come from the right family tree? And then from there, he takes an unexpected turn. He brings us into this occasion in uh, Jesus' life where he is brought into a desolate wilderness setting and he is tempted by the devil. By showing us this, Jesus, or Luke, is asking the question, is Jesus an acceptable Savior? And both things matter. Pedigree and acceptance. If Jesus doesn't come from the right family background, he cannot be the Savior. If Jesus falls to the temptation in the wilderness, he has no business being our Savior. So let's begin with pedigree. Does Jesus have the right family tree? Now, I'm not going to read this to you this morning, this entire genealogy. I know many of you are sad for that reason because you enjoy watching me struggle through that. And I also know that you guys find genealogies boring. Now, why is that? Well, I think it's because we don't place a high premium upon genetic descent. For example, when I was going to marry Katie, uh, I didn't place that much stock in her family background. I wanted to know who her parents were because whether you like it or not, you marry your in-laws, right? And uh, I was thinking if we didn't get along, there could be some hard years ahead. Fortunately, I love Gary and Denise. We get along well, but I was never asking the question, I wonder who Katie's descendants were t- 10 years, uh, 10 generations back. If someone had asked me, did that matter? I'd say, why in the world does that matter? But that's a very Western outlook of the world. You see, for many parts of the world, family lineage is important. It establishes a person's identity, their social position. They even believe that from that, their destiny is shaped in some way. So Luke, writing into this culture, provides the family background of Jesus. But more importantly than that, God made certain promises in the Old Testament that were meant to be like a map or a guide from Adam all the way to whoever the Messiah would be. So if Jesus doesn't come from the right family background, he can't be the Messiah. Let's make a couple of observations of this genealogy. Look first at verse 23, the first verse there. He says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. You see what he did there? He shows us that, yes, Jesus is the adopted son of Joseph, but he also makes clear something that we already knew. Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. You look on in the genealogy and you'll see two important names, David and Abraham. Now, These are important because, again, if you're tracing the roadmap, the Messiah must come from both of those names. Uh, I know you guys have memorized Matthew's genealogy. 
well. And as soon as you looked at that, you said, boy, you know, Matthew goes right from David to Solomon, and, and Luke goes right from David to Nathan. What's going on here? These genealogies are different. Well, I think the best explanation is that Matthew shares Joseph's lineage, and Luke shares Mary's lineage. So in this case, Jesus has the right family background from both parents. He has the right to be the Messiah. Let's make one last observation. And this one brings us to the main point of this genealogy. Matthew ends his genealogy with Abraham. Luke does something different. He goes back, back, back in time, past Abraham, all the way to the first man, Adam. Look at verse 38. Jesus is the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Why do we need to know that? Well, for one thing, we must understand Jesus' humanity. If you were with us last week, I described a, a situation where a son or a daughter takes over the family business, and there's two ways of going about that. But one way, when that person works their way up through the ranks, leads to the general understanding or culture of the place saying, he or she is one of us. And we saw that Jesus' childhood does the same thing. It shows us that Jesus is one of us. Well, this lineage is also reinforcing that point. We are to think of a real human being who experienced the life that we experience from womb all the way to tomb. He has our same physiology, our same psychology. He is like us in every way, but also we noted last week that as the Son of God, He is also unlike us. Did you know that in church history that two major errors have surrounded the nature of Jesus? One error is to place too much emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. In this error, people treat him only as a man. He is the best of us, but he's nothing more. The other error is to make too much of Jesus' deity. We we treat him as so otherworldly that nothing human remains in him. But how does the Bible present Jesus? The Bible presents Jesus as the God-man. He's fully God. He's fully man. Two natures, one fully God, the other fully human in one person. He is the God-man. He is the uh, he combines both meekness and majesty. And we'll see this more as we make our way through Luke. Now let's look at another uh, point that Luke is making here. This is this. We must notice a connection between Adam's story and Jesus' story. In all of human history, there are two people that can really be spoken of as the Son of God. Two people who owe their descent directly from God. One being Adam, the first human who was created by God from the dust. The second being Jesus, born of a virgin, owes his descent to God. 
Now, the next question we need to ask is, what does it mean to us that these two stories connect? Let's think about Adam's story for a minute. You know that Adam was responsible for our fall into sin. And as the first sinless man, he he represented what we could be and should be. But because he chose sin, he also brought all of humanity into a descent. Michael Wilcock, a Luke commentator, envisions this descent as humanity falling into a pit. A pit in which we are all trapped. A pit where the sin of Adam and our own sin has made it impossible for us to climb out of. We try. We try to claw our way out of the pit. Uh, We know the different ways that people try to rise above the human condition. We educate ourselves. We do many humanitarian acts. We might even engage in this health culture where we're trying to fix our bodies. Uh, We try to find political means to create utopian societies. We even believe that if we can advance enough in technology that somehow we're going to pull ourselves out of the human condition. But what we keep finding time and again, that the more we claw our way up out of the pit, these advances also bring in new avenues, new means of sin into the world. The the utopias fall into dystopias. The new technology can be used both for powerful good and powerful evil. The second Adam is Jesus. The New Testament shows us this. He's like us in that he has come down to this pit with us. He is unlike us in that while our descent into the pit was due to disobedience, his coming to the pit was because of his obedience. Now listen to what Michael Wilcox says here about this. He has never let go of the rope which joins him to the world above. He is firmly anchored up there in the unbroken relation of sonship with his father. That is why his humanity is distinctive. That is why it is only by clinging to him that we can ever be lifted out of the pit. Now, I have been talking to your mind a lot this morning. I want to talk to your heart for a minute. Do you sense that? Do you sense that you are in that pit that the Bible's talking about, that you are far from God? Do you sense that you've been striving to get out of that pit, whether uh, it's just asking those basic questions of why am I here and and why do I uh, need to go about this life that I'm living, or maybe you've gotten into the activity trap of success and you've made your way to that place, and then you had that success let down when you realized that the success was not all that it was cracked out to be. Friend, the Bible says that the only way out of that pit is by surrendering our life to Jesus by faith. When we place our trust, our faith, our hope, our confidence in Him, He pulls us out of that pit. Have you done that? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Let's move on. We looked at Jesus' pedigree. Now we ask the question, does or is Jesus the acceptable Savior? 
Now, how do we know that Jesus can pull us out of the pit? Well, with the words, Son of Adam, Son of God, still ringing fresh in our ears, Luke takes us into the wilderness. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So now we are in the southern Judean wilderness. It's called Jeshimon, which can be translated the devastation. I drove through this area when I was in Israel in the comfort of a luxury coach bus where any time I felt even the hint of thirst, I could pull a dollar out of my man purse and walk to the front of the bus and get a cold water. Much, much, much different story to be in this 35 by 50 mile patch of land with nothing. It's not the kind of place where you go for long weekends. It's not where you put your family vacation home. It's the kind of place that you're only there because you have to be there. Remember, Jesus has come off of this spiritual high point. At the Jordan River, the skies open up, the the Spirit descends upon him, and this indicates that the Spirit will be leading his ministry moving forward. The voice of the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son. And what happens as the first act of the Spirit's leading and guiding over the life of Jesus? He takes him to this desolate, hot, sandy, barren wasteland. And while he's guiding him, one week passes no food. He doesn't feel led to have anything for two weeks, three weeks, All the way almost up to six weeks, Jesus has gone without any form of sustenance in this blistering heat. Now again, one of the errors is to put too much emphasis in Jesus' deity. We might say to ourselves, well, what's the difference for Jesus with 40 days without food or 400 days without food? It doesn't matter. Well, I want you to think of one of those pictures of one of those starving African children that you've seen, where their frame is wasted away, where there's been muscle degeneration, where their eyes are hollow and their face is gaunt. That's what he looks like right now. Friends, this is a moment of greatest need. And it is in this moment of greatest need that the enemy of all humanity, the enemy of God himself, shows up and engages in a spiritual battle that has never occurred before or since. In verse 3, Satan begins to spin his deceptive web. He says, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, I know we want to kind of envision Satan having this snaky voice. I don't think he sounds like that. I think he sounds pretty convincing. Now, the statement is not intended to cast doubt on Jesus' identity. Satan and Jesus both know who he is. 
He's meaning to imply this. Don't you think things could be going a little better since you're the Son of God? Haven't you heard that whisper in, in your head before? Uh, you're a child of God. You know that God loves people. Don't, don't you think that things could be going a little better than this? Why are you struggling so much at work? Why is your marriage going the way that your marriage is going? If God cared, don't you think He would be a little more responsive to your situation? One of Satan's key strategies is to cause us to question God's motives and God's timing. You go all the way back to Genesis 3, it's the same type of question that Satan says to Eve. Did God actually say that you couldn't eat from what? Any of the trees in the garden. Did God say any? He said one. Now put yourself in his shoes. You're in the wilderness. You're not there for a picnic. The Holy Spirit has led you here for some reason, and now Satan is inserting the thought, it seems like you've been forsaken. The temptation is subtle. If God has forsaken you, why don't you do something about it? Do something about it. Be self-determined. Be impatient. Doubt. Jesus, I know you're supposed to wait on God, but take care of your need. You're the Son of God for crying out loud. You can flick your fingers and stones become bread. You could blink your eyes and there'd be an entire bakery here. What are you waiting for? And now, now we come to understand something fundamental about sin. You see, sin most fundamentally is our attempt to usurp God's right to be God. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. That's what Israel did in the wilderness and through their history. That's what we do. Temptation whispers, you can make a better decision than God can. I mean, can you really, can you really trust God with your sex life? Can you really trust God that if you wait to marry a believer that you'll find the right person? Can you trust God to take care of your needs? To provide for your comfort and yes, even your wants? I mean, maybe you should be unethical for a while and put a little more money in the bank. You gotta have some kind of money to fall back on. Can you really trust God with that anger that's been bubbling up in your heart over that person who hurt you, why not just go and tell a couple more people about what they did? It'll make you feel better. The question always is, will you let God be God? Will you let God choose or will you choose? Well, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy three times in this exchange. I know some of you are in Thrive Group and you're going to be talking about the sermons. So I'm going to give you one of the Deuteronomy references and your homework is to go and find the other two, okay? Uh, I'll give you a little hint. You can find them in Deuteronomy chapter 6 through chapter 8 and you're not allowed to use a reference Bible. You have to actually go and read and find. So the first quote is Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live by bread alone, 
Now this takes us back to a time in Israel's history when Moses has described to Israel God's faithfulness in the desert for 40 years. And He provided for them with manna. And by quoting this, Jesus is saying to Satan, I do not depend on bread. I depend on my Father. I depend on God. If God wants me to have bread, then there's nothing that will prevent that from happening. Think about what you're depending on. You are not, friend, dependent on your career. You are not dependent on your lover no matter how they make you feel. You are not dependent on entertainment. You're not dependent on that grudge that you're holding on to. If you're a believer in God, a follower of Jesus, even if, if you haven't put God into your worldview for some time now, you're always, always dependent on God. Because God's the only one who's worthy of us placing our dependence on. Everything else will let us down. Only God can prove faithful 100% of the time. Let's look at the second temptation now. This one involves a visionary experience. In verses 5 and 6, it tells us that the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and the glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. Now, the most important question at this point to ask is, does Satan have the right to do that? <laughs> We're walking down Osterville Bay with a friend and they point at one of those mega mansions there in Osterville Bay and say, hey, I'm giving that to you. Would you feel like you owned it? Particularly if they don't own it? And the last time I checked, God owns it all. Why? He created it. Psalm 21.4 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. However, as we read the New Testament, we see that God has granted Satan the right to rule the earth for a time. Now, we could talk about why that is. I don't have time to unpack all of that with you this morning, but for now, let's just let the Bible speak. John 12, 31, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. But here's the deal, friends. That's a temporary rule. The Bible tells us that Jesus ultimately has the right to rule the nation. Psalm 2.8 says this, Ask of me, this is the Father speaking to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So if it's going to belong to Jesus one day, why would there be any temptation for Satan to grant Jesus the right to rule the earth? Well, it involves this. There are always two pathways to glory. Satan's pathway, Satan's offer is to make Jesus a political Messiah and not a suffering Messiah. There would be a crown without a cross. He would avoid the agony, the screams, the letting of blood. The death by asphyxiation, if he would just give Satan the credit, right? Look at verse 7. If you worship me, it will all be yours. 
Again, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, and remember this is your homework to find the reference. Verse 8, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. What would have been lost if Jesus bowed and took his throne early? Well, besides the unimaginable consequence of Jesus betraying the Father, he would have lost us, humanity. The cross is the narrow road to glory. It's the lonely road that Jesus must travel to save us from our sins and to be our king. And this is the same type of temptation that we face as Christians. Do you want a Christianity without cost? Do you want a discipleship that's pain-free, problem-free? Don't worry about being faithful. Friend, worry about instant gratification. Go ahead and get distracted from God's mission. You only have so long to live. You might as well just build up a series of experiences in your life so that you can look back and say, I had a full life. Don't worry about if you missed following God all along the way while you pursued that. Your choice. But what kind of choice does Jesus make? As we look here at the Scriptures, we see that Jesus chose a self-denying love, a sacrificial death, a narrow road. This is the type of road that is less traveled. Don't let someone spin to you a Christianity that has no cost involved in it. It has never been said in all of the Bible. There is a cost to following Jesus. And why is it important to follow that road? Well, Jesus, our great example, shows us that God's pathway to glory is the only pathway to glory. Satan's alternative route only leads to destruction. Let's look at the final temptation. Satan takes Jesus to the pentacle, pentacle of the temple. This is likely the southeastern side of the Temple Mount. It overlooks the Kidron Valley. And if you look down from that section, there is about a 450-foot drop into oblivion. Now, if you've ever looked down over a precipice like this, your heart beats. You feel dizzy. It's steep. You know what happens if you fall off. So Satan brings Jesus up there. He notices a certain pattern that's been taking place. Did you notice that pattern? Every time he suggests a temptation to Jesus, Jesus comes back and quotes Scripture at him. I mean, can you imagine that? Well, Satan also knows the Bible. And so he decides he'll quote Scripture too. And I'll give you this reference. Psalm 91, 11 and 12. Now look at those verses, Luke 4, 9 through 11. He took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle, said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. His final temptation essentially is this, Will you use God for your own purposes? Go ahead. Throw yourself off the temple. God will show up. You're the Messiah. 
course God is going to save you. Think of it like this, too. Imagine all of the spectacular, instantaneous, uh, advanced to stardom that would come with a prophet being saved by an angel. Can you imagine? But what if Jesus did this? He wouldn't be acceptable as our Savior because that is self-centered. That is using God for his own end. And so he quotes from Deuteronomy again. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes from this occasion when Israel was at Massa and they were grumbling against Moses because God had not provided for them or so they thought. It was there at this place of Massa that they questioned God's care. They demanded God's provision. He, God, was their genie to call in question as they wanted. But here's the the tricky thing about God. He doesn't want to be your genie. He doesn't want to come out of the lamp and, and engage with your questions and meet your demands when you have them and then go back in the lamp and be placed on the shelf until you need them again. He will not be manipulated. He will be worshipped. He will be trusted. He will be pursued in faith. But he will not be consumed like we consume shopping malls. And you notice what's happening with Jesus' understanding of the Scriptures. Did you see that back and forth with the Scripture in this? I, I recently was listening to a podcast, the president of Southern Theological Seminary, Albert Moeller, and he was citing some research that recently came out that noted that a majority of atheists know the Bible better than a majority of Bible-believing Christians. Okay, so here's the deal. They want to know the Bible to denounce God more than we want to know the Bible to know God. Do you see the problem there? As you look at this story, Jesus clearly shows us that He knows the Bible. He understands the Scriptures. In fact, even when Satan twists the Scriptures, Jesus knows the context. He knows the meaning of the Scriptures that he is able to contradict what's being done in that. Do you know when the Bible's being twisted? When you're on Facebook and there's a post of Scripture or a biblical truth, do you know if that's actually what the Bible says or does it just kind of ring right in your ear? Do you know the Bible? Well, friend, I want to suggest three ways that we can get the Bible in our life because i got to tell you, I think we all need more of the Bible. These three steps, if you pursue these through your life in a consistent way, you will grow to know the Scriptures. The first is sit under Bible-based preaching every Sunday. Now, you might be coming in here and saying, I only understood 10% of what you said. That's okay. But the more that you come and sit under the teaching of the Bible, that 10% becomes 15, 15, 20, and on down the line until you're really comprehending what the Bible says. Secondly, I would suggest join a Thrive group to grow in the context of community. We grow best in community. And thirdly, read the Bible on a reading plan. Don't do this with the Bible. Magic 8-Ball, 
I need something today. Boom, what does the Bible have to say? And he went down to Capernaum in the city of Galilee and was teaching them on the Sabbath. That does nothing for you. Get on a reading plan where you're reading the Bible in the way the Bible was intended to be read. Cover to cover. Taking books and authors at face value as they intended to write to us. So let's bring this all home now. You know, Satan is the father of lies. The only way to combat lies is with truth. If you know the Bible, you know the truth. So we've been asking two questions. Does Jesus come from the right family tree? We saw in the genealogy, indeed he does. We also asked the question, is Jesus an acceptable Savior? And Luke answers this question by showing us Jesus standing up to temptation. But there's one thing that I didn't show you, and I want you to see this because I think it's very important. Throughout this entire narrative sequence, this temptation, Luke uses a narrative device called typology. What is typology, you ask? Well, that's a great question. Typology is when the Bible creates a parallel relationship between New Testament and Old Testament events or people or symbols. So in the genealogy, we saw that Jesus was like Adam. Then we saw him face a similar temptation that Adam faced. Though notice that Jesus was not in paradise. He was in the devastation. And he stands strong. We also would see a parallel between Jesus being like Moses, Jesus being like Israel. He is brought into the wilderness and he is succumbed to Intense starvation for 40 days while Moses and Israel walked through the wilderness with God for 40 years and God provided to them. Israel, Moses, questioned God. Jesus stood strong and quoted Scripture. You see, the point over and over again is this. Jesus is better. He's better. Jesus is the better Adam Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Israel. As we close down our service this morning, I want you to contemplate this idea of typology and see that Jesus is better. So we're going to close our time with a video that takes us through many of the Old Testament themes and shows us how Jesus is better. And then we'll close with a song of commitment together.